This is Education Podcast, Making Your Masterpiece. I'm Cameron Zendars, and this is my interview with historian Roy Olson. I wanted to start with just how we first met and give a little bit of background to how this interview essentially came to fruition. Um, I wanted to put this plug out there mostly for newer teachers because a lot of times we look at professional development as being like kind of something you just have to do. But I think that if it's approached the right way, it can be incredibly mutually beneficial for all people involved. And so Roy was giving a talk on uh, discourse in the classroom, utopian discourse, and was doing a, um, a, a session at the Illinois State uh, History Symposium. And I really enjoyed what he had to talk about, and it fit really well with what my project is for grad school. So I approached him just right after the, the session and just started talking to him about it. And, you know, what, what I wanted to throw out there with that is how important it is in education to not only go to these professional developments, but actually be active with them to make some sort of networking happen. Because, you know, not only I think is this beneficial for Roy and I, but I think it's also something that could lead to a, a relationship, uh, you know, both friendship and a mutual beneficial relationship for our, our teaching. So I want to throw that out there. Um, Roy, what even got you into doing that session? Yeah. So before I, I answer that, let me just thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate this. This will be fun. Um, it's an honor to help you out with this one. Uh, I had um, decided to do the session one because I went to ISU and I wanted to give back to the history pro program. So staying in contact with them is always a positive. Um, but then also I wanted to share with colleagues, especially newer teachers, a, uh, ready hands-on way, uh, that you can, uh, introduce discussion, debate, and discourse in the classroom between students and really remove yourself from, uh, the discussion as much as possible. Just let, let, let the kids kind of take it over. You sort of sit back and watch. Um, there was, there's a book that was published, I believe in the nine, 1980s. So it's kind of an oldie, but still a goodie. It's called teaching with your mouth shut. And I, I want to say the author's last name is Fink, but I, 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 uh, might, might be wrong on that one. Um, but anyways, the, the crux of the book is basically like your students are going to get the most out of their educational experience when you, the teacher sort of just sit back and let them hash out uh, in information that's being discussed in the classroom. So essentially you're sitting in the room, you're observe, observing everything, your presence is still there, but you have your mouth shut. And I really uh, was taken by the argument in that book. And I came about the book at the same time that I was in graduate school. And I was sort of sitting around in my graduate classes and I sort of had this epiphany. I was like, I love this. This is fantastic. I, I've never had more fun in school than just reading books and coming and talking about them with my professors and with my peers. And I sort of, you know, was thinking, why don't I do this in, in my classes that I teach in high school level? Uh, they're really, and I couldn't really come up with a good reason other than uh, other teachers had told me in the past that it didn't work. And so um, I teach in a very progressive minded district and a lot of the administrators were, you know, encouraging teachers to go out on a limb and try some, something new. So I decided to uh, re reach out to um, my, uh, uh, my teacher co colleague base and try and figure out if there was anybody out there. And actually, my uncle, who's also a history teacher, um, had in place a debate and Socratic seminar system. And I pr pretty much just borrowed from him what he had been using and what he, he, what had been working for him for a while, tweaked it to fit my own classroom and came up with this way that I could, uh, 
encourage kids to talk and debate topics instead of just listen to me tell them about them. So um, yeah, it was basically, I got the epiphany in grad school, thought about how I could implement it in the classroom, was encouraged to take a chance and did it and been doing it ever since. And it's important that I throw it out there. At the end of every year, I ask my classes, what's the one thing that this class couldn't do without? What, what should I not get rid of? And they tell me debates 100% of the time. I mean, that's almost a unanimous decision. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned in there was you pursuing your, your master's in, in history. And um, if, if you were just talking to other history teachers out there, um, why, why would you say that it was necessary or even just valuable for you to get that master's in history? So the, um, when I went to get my master's and I had pitched it to my boss, he kind of gave me a, a look and said, oh, you don't want to do that. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, a history mad masters doesn't really go that far in the education world. And I kind of was like, well, this is what I want to do. So, and luckily enough, I, you know, uh, he signed all the papers and, and I was able to go and, uh, do it, but I really wanted to do it because the content is what got me into the classroom. And I've always been interested in, uh, making sure that students understood the world in which they lived. Uh, and using history class as an engine to do that. So I figured that if I went back to school uh, and studied history, it would only make me that much better of a history teacher because I would be able to, you know, understand, um, I would be able to study more topics and I would have more information to share with, with my students. But when I actually went back to school, what I found was that uh, the graduate experience, it, while it certainly did provide me with more, you know, trivial facts and vignettes and things to share in the classroom, what it actually did was sort of hardened a framework through which I saw education and the world that I was unable to bring into the classroom with me. So it made, it gave me sort of a mandate to teach more pur purposefully because I'm in these classes with these college professors and I'm really enjoying it. And um, you're talking about all these these ideas and and how to make the world a better place and things to change and things not not to change and applying what happened in the past to today, which is always things that teachers at, at the high school level want to do. But um, doing that through studying historical topics, I think, was uh, a phenomenal opportunity. But then the other reason was I don't feel like high school teachers can be effective in the long run unless they remain wedded to their content. And if we just learn the extent of our content in our undergraduate experience, then how are we going to move forward with our pedagogy in the classroom? And if we are truly about making the educational experience one that liberates kids, that uh, helps move society along for posterity, then we need to see ourselves as scholars. And I, I like to put that pressure on uh, my fellow te teachers a lot that, that, you know, high school teachers in America don't get enough credit yeah. and they don't get enough credit for the schooling that they do attend for the hard work that they do. Um, and you look around the world and there's a lot of places where there's, you know, higher expectations for teachers, but at the same time, we can't fall into a trap of just saying like, Oh, we benefit from, minimal education requirements to be a high school teacher. Let's just do the minimum, the minimum and get by. No, I think that it's important for teachers to see themselves as scholars because then if we do that, if, if we hold ourselves to a higher regard, the students will appreciate that. They'll take our classes more seriously. 
but then it's just a, it's a good message. I can't, I, I don't know a teacher that's not uh, passionate who's effective in the classroom. So my, you know, my passion for the subject got, got me there, but then also sort of wanting to keep up this scholarly devotion to both high school teaching and the historical discipline. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, the importance of understanding your content and specifically both of ours, our mutual content is history. You know, it's interesting, Roy, that I think we live in a society more than ever that undervalues the arts and the humanities and, and probably arguably overvalues things like STEM. As a matter of fact, most would say that STEM, the mathematics, the Englishes, um, all those are more important than classes like history. What would you say to those people that kind of undervalue our, our profession, our, our content? I mean, there's no, there's no question that the li- liberal arts and the humanities are under assault in America. And this is a part of this sort of uh, political neoliberal project that goes back to the uh, 1950s through the 1970s that tried to gut social pro programs and limit social services in, in an effective sense, essentially whittling down any sort of social safety net. If you have classes that are robust and are attached to the humanities, what you're going to get is classes that preach student introspection, students trying to figure out uh, themselves through education, but then also trying to better understand the world in which they live. Well, I think that it's very clear to the people that um, champion this neoliberal project that are trying to make government's involvement in people's lives smaller and limit the effect that schools uh, have in the long run and just let the the so-called free market hammer things out they realize that humanities classes run counter to that project. And so if you have a robust humanities department or a robust humanities cadre uh, of classes, then all of a sudden you're challenging the status quo, which is let the free, free market handle, its, uh, hand, handle everything. Um, students should stick to majors in college like finance or business, things that are safe, things that um, basically cater more to Wall Street than cater to society as a whole. Um, and you and I are film, filming this during the whole, whole COVID outbreak, so it's really easy to make these kinds of references, but we're seeing increasingly these people sort of go veil off and indicate that they're more concerned with saving Wall Street than they are other people's lives. And so um, students that are at the high school level are very impressionable. Don't get me wrong. And if we're, if we're towing the line for a status quo that values the marketplace over their grandparents, we're going to be doing something that I believe most of them don't agree with. And so if we have liberal arts classes like English, like history, like sociology, things, things like that, that encourage kids to think about themselves, but then also are intended on questioning the way that society currently functions, then all of a sudden you've run up against the current uh, hegemonic intellectual powers of our time. And so um, I would remind those people that anybody who's towing the line for STEM, which don't get me wrong, STEM is very important, but there are things that you cannot quantify. And uh, th- this whole process is sort of uh, 
it's there, there's an educational philosopher named Henry Giroux and he wrote a book called on critical pedagogy. And one of the, the, his opening chapters is on this phenomenon called positivism, which is basically like we can, we know that progress moves society forward and the current view of what progress is, I don't think has room for humanities in it. It's very quantifiable. It's very monetary and it's very technocratic. That doesn't have room for personal growth, for uh, personal agency through uh, collective solidarity. And because of that, you find that humanitarian or humanities classes sort of get the raw end of the deal. You, you mentioned it quite a few times, this idea of teaching our students to be critical. And I, I often bring that up to my students of, I want them to be critical, but not cynical. And how there is a fine line between the two. But um, I think this fits really well into the main topic that we're just, dis- we're discussing for this podcast, which is this idea of bringing deliberative discussion, debate, discourse into our classroom and how important it is. How do you feel that that type of teaching methodology helps spur on critical thinking in the classroom, criticalness in our students? I love to bring debates and discourse into the classroom because what it does is it forces me as an educator to get outside of this proverbial box that I think many educators, especially in the social studies and uh, the humanities have come up with. They love to throw out this line of, I'm a great teacher because I bring in both perspectives. Okay. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure that everybody who listens to this has heard it. And, and I think it's time that we do away with that reductionist, simple-minded thought because there are more than two perspectives. And as a sociology teacher, I know that, that you, you can appreciate that. Um, but it's important for teachers that are teaching a class where there's some sort of argument to be had. And to be quite honest, that can be any classroom. That can be a STEM class. That can be a history class. Um, we can, you, you can definitely run a biology class on what's more important for human health, brushing your teeth or putting on sun, sunscreen, you know? So, so it's not just a, a history class thing. And I hope that, that teachers re- realize that if you are going to do a debate in the classroom, it almost forces you as the teacher to bring in more than just two perspectives. And so I know it's very easy to just give dueling sides. Okay. So let's say you're a teacher that wants to bring in just two sides. That's fine. But there are two sides because we live in a, in a two-party political system. There are two sides that most students know. They, they know the standard liberal centrist view, and they know the more conservative um, standard American conservative view of things. They oftentimes aren't given the totalitarian view, which what, so I'm fine keeping that out, right? But there's, if you go further left, a lot of those voices are suppressed in the classroom. You're much more likely to hear about Jane Addams in a U.S. history class than Eugene Debs. So like keeping Debs out of the equation, I think silences an important philosophical contingent in American history. Uh, If you're doing a debate in the classroom and you as the teacher are now tasked with giving the kids multiple perspectives, it allows you to go all, all about, or like the entirety of the political spectrum and deliver students these ideas, okay? So then once you've done that, students are now grappling with several perspectives instead of just two. And so 
once they do that, oftentimes what I found is that voices in those packets or in those worksheets or wherever you sort of have the kids, uh, whatever they're re reading or utilizing, the stuff that they've never had before or they've never been exposed to before is usually what they value the most and usually helps them figure out more about themselves than just the views that they're always taught. And so like, I, I remember back to when I was going through, through school and it was always, it was two perspectives. It was two perspectives. It was two perspectives. It wasn't until I got into grad school really that I, that it clicked that said, Oh my gosh, there's more than two perspectives. And I think that it's really important for kids to know that. And it sort of frees them. It's liberating for students. All of a sudden you've exponentially increased their agency because I think a lot of them feel like, trapped in this sort of um, oppressive education system that sort of puts them in rows and dictates them by bells and measures their performance mer meritocratically uh, by this grading system. But within the, the current paradigm of two perspectives, they don't, have anywhere, they don't have anywhere to go. So all of a sudden, when, they, when you start talking about oppression outside of those two perspectives, it really frees the kids from a box that I think that they know that they're trapped in. They just don't know how to get out of it. I think some teachers, especially in the history uh, field, feel that because they're bringing in two perspectives instead of just telling them the one perspective that we're being progressive. But I think true progressive teaching is understanding that not only should we not just give them the one perspective that the history narrative is written, uh, not even just the two, but starting to teach them that they can hear all kinds of different perspectives and even more empowering, I think, is getting them to learn that they can take aspects of different perspectives and formulate their own take, their own narrative of what they think history really is. And to me, that's, that's what I think is the beauty of teaching our students these discussion, deliberative, you know, discussion and debate skills, is that it takes them and actually makes them, gives them ownership, um, agency of their own learning. With that in mind, you know, we, we could sit here and talk for days about how awesome it is to have meaningful discussion in the classroom, but I think there's two catches to that. Um, one is what you mentioned early on, which is really difficult, I know, for myself sometimes, and, and I would probably guess for you as well, is teaching with our mouth shut. Sometimes it's really hard when we kind of have, you know, we have the curse of knowledge. We, we as teachers often know a lot of the different perspectives. We kind of have our own bias. Sometimes it's really hard to let go of the classroom and let our students take over. Um, what would you say were your initial hesitations to bringing this kind of discussion into the classroom? And how have you kind of gotten over yourself, if you will, and, and kind of pulled yourself out of the discussion at times? Sure. So let me, let, before I do that, let me preface it by just giving uh, your listeners an idea of what, what it looks like. So I, I do 10 debates um, where students are given some sort of polarizing question. Uh, for example, the most recent one was, uh, was the Chinese re revolution beneficial for chi China's development or, or did it impede chi China's development? Didn't get to do that one, but uh, looking forward to it in the future. So kids, kids will have read about that before they, they come in and they'll be on preset teams and then they'll debate it. Um, I also do various uh, Socratic discussions throughout the, the semester. Initially, I was really hesitant because I, I had sort of um, a lot of voices around me giving me all of the reasons why it couldn't happen. Well, what happens if there's one kid who doesn't do their homework? Well, what happens if there's somebody that says something wrong? Well, what happens if half the class doesn't do their homework? And so it, 
it really entails you knowing your class in order to do one of these things. You, you can't just on the second day of school say, here's an article and let's discuss it. Because like you said before, teachers are sort of, they, they have this, this idealistic version of what their classroom is going to look like, especially when they start. And even I have this at the beginning of every year when I don't know my students. Oh, this is going to be the best group of discussers I've ever had in my life, right? But still on the second day of school, I don't necessarily just tell them to discuss some sort of complex historical document, right? It takes time. I love, I love the whole teaching with your mouth shut as opposed to the prevailing um, idiom that's around there now, uh, student-centered learning. So I know that that's one that people who are listening to, to this will probably have heard, might even fetishize a little bit, but um, I like teaching with your mouth shut better because it implies that you're still teaching. Yeah. Okay, student-centered learning has now removed you, the teacher, from it, which I know, no, that never happens. Okay, so I'm like, I'm being uh, high, hyperbolic here, but when you're doing a discussion or a debate in the classroom, it's important to remember that you are not removing yourself. Okay, you're still there and you can talk whenever you feel like it. So I might talk more in a, when we do a discussion on a, on a topic I'm really passionate about. Let's say we're doing one on the Haitian Re Revolution. I might talk more about that because A, it's complicated and B, I love to talk about the Haitian Re Revolution. Then I might do that one I might talk more in that one than say on uh, the benefits and drawbacks of imperialism in Africa, because that's an easier topic. I think that the students are able to wrap their minds around the, the teacher is not removed from the, ju just because the students are discussing or are discussing the teacher is not like they have the period off. They've done all the thought prior to it. So every, most of the debates that I do, I've either looked for uh, the, the materials or I've physically made the material. That takes so much time, but it also allows me to sort of direct the student's discussion in certain places. I know the materials that are in there. I've picked them purposefully. If I'm an AP teacher, I might, I might go towards documents that I know show up on the AP test. If I'm teaching a regular le level class, I might go to documents that I know students are f familiar with, but then making sure that there's always a counter to that um, for them to talk about. Because sure, I can give you the constitution and I can have you read it, but how many students have really read a critique of the constitution? Not many. So now all of a sudden we can debate the constitution in hopes of utilizing the constitution in the future in a more social justice minded way. So the teacher is not removed from it. Okay. So the naysayers at the very beginning said, well, what are you going to do if the student says something wrong? Well, I just correct it. Right. I'm, I'm still there. I'm still overseeing. I mean, I remember, um, I, I remember sitting in a graduate class and we were talking about Foucault and postmodernism. And in that class, there was a student that in a very smug way said, well, I don't understand how a postmodernist can say that truth isn't a thing, but then write a book telling me what's truthful. And, the and, and it was a student-led discussion and the professor very calmly just put his stuff down and said, you're reducing this too much and you're not getting uh, into the meat of what's actually there. So you, the teacher, still have command over the discussion. It's still your classroom. Now, if a kid doesn't do his homework, I've got news for teachers out there. If you find a classroom of 30 kids who everybody does, does their homework, I want to know where you teach because <laughs> I want to teach there for a, a year. Okay, Not every kid's going to do, do, do their homework. So 
you have to try and put in place ways to motivate them, um, whether they're extrinsic or intrinsic. Um, hopefully it's a combination of both, but um, you got to build in safeguards that allow you to take the, the, the activity a different direction if you just have a class that's not good at discussing or isn't there yet. But then also you have to build in mechanisms to get them motivated. Of all the years that I've done this, and I'm probably on like year six or seven where debates have really dominated my classroom, I have never had one that I stopped in the middle of it and said, we're going to do some, something else. They've always played out. Um, and the interesting thing, and I don't want to be too political here, but usually it's a, it's a topic that like, um, I, I had one recently that was on the Philippines and the insurrection in the Philippines and whether or not American intervention was justified. Well, the team who was arguing that it was justified had a really, really hard time. But I didn't stop that debate because I wanted people in the classroom to see just how difficult of a uh, a task it is to argue so that if they're up against that idea out in the public and they don't believe it now all of a sudden now they have the capacity to battle and wrangle with those ideas even when they're not in my class this ends part one of my interview with roy olson on discussion and discourse in the classroom check into the next episode of making your masterpiece to hear roy and i discuss using controversy in the classroom as well as how we practically implement it in our own classrooms